As you heard Katie say this fall at Kenilworth Union, we're preaching this sermon series called The Wizard of Uz, which is about the book of Job. The book of Job was written for occasions like September 11. So today's lesson is from chapters 1 and 2. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job saying the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and carried them off and killed all the servants too and I alone am escaped to tell you. While this messenger was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While this messenger was speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns and made a raid on the camels and carried them off and killed all the servants too, and I alone am escaped to tell you. While this one was speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone am escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Job's wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as you might guess, Job's wife has not fared well in the annals of religious literature down the centuries. She has been persona non grata from the beginning ever since she had the audacity to tell her husband to curse God and die. In the 4th century, the great theologian St. Augustine called her the Adutrix Diaboli, Satan's secretary, or an assistant to the diabolical one. And in the 16th century, John Calvin used essentially the same vocabulary when he called Job's wife the Organum Satanae, the instrument of Satan. I suppose these two great theologians were on target with their remarks, Because after all, at the beginning, she was an instrument of Satan, right? She tried to get her husband to do exactly what Satan wanted Job to do, to curse God and die. So in some sense, she literally was Satan's assistant or Satan's instrument. But I don't want to be too quick to judgment this morning. Over the centuries, Jews and Christians have had all this sympathy and pity for this afflicted man from us named Job, who lost first his livelihood and then his children and then even his health. We've forgotten all about Job's wife. But in fact, probably her pain was even greater than her husband's. First, she watches her husband's livelihood vanish into thin air like smoke, and then her seven handsome sons and three beautiful daughters the fruit of her body and the companions of her breast are just crushed in the home destroyed by a hurricane. 
I wanted some images of Job's wife, so I went to the internet. Do you know who shows up first if you Google Job's wife? This fetching 58-year-old blonde shows up first. Her name is Lorreen Powell, and in 1991, she married Steve Jobs. <laughs> when you Google Job's wife, it's not Mrs. Job that comes up, but Mrs. Jobs. Now, the Bible doesn't name Job's wife. And so when the tradition comes to the story and finds what it can, considers to be gaps, the tradition tries to fill in those gaps. So the Bible doesn't give Job's wife a name. Presumably, it wasn't Loreen. But in a Greek version of the story from the first century, Job's wife is called Sidites. You can tell that that's a very Greek name. It's all Greek to me. In the Jewish tradition, the rabbis call her Dinah. Now, tradition has it that with her husband on the verge of bankruptcy, too ill to work, she goes back to work herself to support her family. And when even that is inadequate, she sells her luxurious locks to fend off poverty. And so Sidites is an ancient equivalent to Fantine who sells her own beautiful hair to buy medicine for her daughter in Hugo's Les Miserables. So maybe she was an attractive 58-year-old woman with luxurious locks who sells her hair to support what's left of her family. And in the story, finally, it's just all too much for Sidites. The poverty, the grief, the strain of nursing her sick husband back to health. There she is, holed up in a fifth floor walk-up, one room, cold water flat, which is all they can any longer afford, and she's watching her husband scrape his sores with a piece of broken china, and she just snaps. Job himself, of course, persists in his integrity. He's still stoic and respectful. Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But this long integrity that Sidites has so admired in her husband now becomes false. It's a false sham. It doesn't feel real to her. Where once it was a symbol of Job's goodness and strength, now it's become a symbol of his weakness and resignation. And so she says to her husband, Do you still persist in your integrity? Job, don't be a whimpering little pipsqueak. Stand up on your own two feet and tell this bully what you think of him. Curse God and die. Damn him to the hell he's building for all the bruised, bloodied, broken children of the earth. So you see what's happening to Sidites, right? For her, Job's unshakable reverence for God is equivalent in her mind to an irreverence for her sacred children. She says to herself, if Job persists in loving God after all God has done to Job, then Job must never have loved my children very much. I like her. I like Sidites. She has a kind of Promethean rebellion against the gods who assault humanity with cruelty. Now, I think we'll see in coming weeks that her response to evil is inadequate and that Job's insistence on hanging on to God is more commendable and in the end more helpful. It's inadequate, but it is common and it is understandable. 
And our task, I think, when it comes to people like Sidites is not to rebuke her, but to understand her. Because we meet her all over the place. She turns up in our lives here and there, now and then, in the pages of literature, in the centuries down history's way, and in our own puny little lives. We're always meeting Sidites. She's the woman whose husband beats her up with his words, if not with his hands. She's in the mother who sits next to the bed of despair through long centuries of chemotherapy. We might even encounter her in Lorraine Powell, who lost her husband to cancer when he was 56 years old. It's the job of these people not to praise God, but to curse death. Yes, not praise God, but curse death. And you know the thing about Mrs. Job? God doesn't say a thing to her. He lets her insolent words just stand as they are. Now, when it comes to Job's friends, so-called friends, these guys who will bring him nothing but shallow religion and empty platitude, God will say, you are just foolish. You are not saying what is right about me, and you're making me mad. Shut up! That's a literal translation. Shut up, says God. In fact, you'd better ask Job to pray that I not kill you, and maybe I'll listen to him. Shut up, he says. So, to God's staunchest defenders, God says, shut up. And to God's fiercest critic, Sidites, God has nothing to say. He doesn't rebuke her insolence because maybe God understands her pain. Is it because her anger is truer and realer than empty platitudes and shallow religion? Today we mark a solemn anniversary. When the Twin Towers fell 20 years ago, Elizabeth II sent a kind message to the city of New York. Grief, she said, is the price we pay for love. Yes? Grief is the price we pay for love. But atrocities like this will just reinforce our common humanity and our sense of community and our trust in the rule of law. Rest in peace, faithful regent. Twenty-one years ago, Sean Rooney lived in Stamford, Connecticut, just up the road from my last church in Greenwich. Sean was a Catholic. He was not a member of my congregation, but some of the people in my congregation knew Sean. Twenty-one years ago, Sean was working as a vice president in risk management for the Aon Corporation on the 98th floor of the South Tower. And when that second plane hit the South Tower, Sean began running down towards the street, trying to get down the stairways and out to the street. But every exit was blocked, and so he turned around and headed back up towards the roof. And he made it to the 105th floor before he was stuck. And so he just stopped running. The stairways were filling with smoke. And he called his wife, Beverly Eckert. Beverly says, Sean had warm brown eyes and dark curly hair, and he was a great hugger. We met at a dance 
when we were 16 years old at our Catholic high school in Buffalo. We were 50 when he died. It was 8, 9.30 when the call came in, and Sean told me the hallways were filling with smoke. And I asked him if it was hard to breathe, and Sean thought about it for a moment and finally said no. He loved me enough to lie. And so we stopped talking about escape routes and began talking instead about all the happiness we'd shared over the years. And I told him I wanted to be there with him. I wanted to die with him. And he said, no, 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 you have to live a long life. You have to live life for both of us. I wanted to crawl through the phone lines to be with him. And as the smoke got thicker, he just kept whispering over and over again, I love you, I love you, over again, over and over again, I love you. And then I heard a sharp crack and the sound of an avalanche. It was the building collapsing in on itself and then the line went dead and I kept shouting his name into the phone, but I heard nothing and I just held it to my heart. And I think about the 30 minutes I spent with Sean on the phone that day all the time. I didn't want it to end. I didn't want that day to end. As terrible as it was, I didn't want that day to end because at least I began it with Sean. It was a day we shared together. When he left for work that morning, he kissed me goodbye. And I could say all that day, that was just a little while ago. That was today. I didn't want to go to sleep. And with all that's happened since Sean died and all the causes I've worked for, I like to think that I'm living life for both of us. I like to think that Sean would be proud of me. I love the way she puts that. I like to think that I'm living life for both of us because I'm all that's left. And maybe you know that Beverly Eckert, after her husband died, became a prominent and effective spokeswoman for the families of 9-11 victims. In another of God's little jokes, Beverly herself died in a plane crash in 2009 at the age of 57. She was flying to Buffalo to give out a scholarship in the name of her husband at her Catholic high school. When we meet people like Sidides and Beverly, and maybe even Lorene. Maybe it's best if we can just listen to their mournful laments, to their haunting complaints, and to hold them close until God returns with God's lavish benedictions. And if we're able to do that, maybe, just maybe, in the end, they will be able to say, with Job himself, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.